Welcome to Film Grain, the official podcast of the Film Society of Northwestern Pennsylvania and the Greater Erie Film Office. We're coming to you in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, each of us recording at home. In our current format, we discuss industry news and help alleviate your boredom with our film and series recommendations. Plus, we preview our new weekly Film Under Quarantine series. We invite you, our listeners, to give your feedback on our selections. We know you all have opinions. I'm Jesse Olszewski, filmmaker and project coordinator at the Greater Erie Film Office. I'm Erica Berlin, the executive director of the Film Society. I'm John Lyons, director of programming, teaching artist, and filmmaker. I'm Stuart Nash, local 600 cinematographer, guild member, and the director of the Greater Erie Film Office. And I'm Mike Berlin, Erica Berlin's husband. All right. (laughs) So, all right. Thanks, Mike. Um, This week, we're going to share some new film industry stories, as we do, including the $1 million Sundance Institute Fund, the DGA's plan to restart production, and future challenges for independent filmmakers in the state of New York. Today, we're going to talk about our thoughts on Children of Men, available on Stars, and the first three episodes of The IT Crowd, which is available on Netflix. First, how is everyone doing? Yeah, let's do the birthday boy. Happy birthday, John Lyons. Happy Wait birthday, John Lyons. Okay, let's all sing together now. However, this is, this is getting released. Yeah, this is a week ago. Yeah, still. I know. <laughs> we're, we're recording on John Lyons' birthday. I listened to the podcast today from last week in which we very heartily wished John happy birthday then as well. <laughs> so. Nice. So let's move, <laughs> let's move on. It's a week later. I'm old. It's a week later. We're done. You're old now. Old news. <laughs> Has everybody in lockdown, I'm sure. Everybody's plans are doing nothing. You, you know what? The The pandemic is not affecting me as much as the beach being flooded. Oh, <laughs> Dude, I know. Tell me about it, man. That's affecting me, too. I'm going nuts. Water lover. Messing up my routine. Yeah, That's the blading problem. isn't so good and underwater. <laughs> <laughs> nope. I'm supposed to close on the house on the 30th, which is next week. Of course, everyone's still under, you know, quarantine. The closing's supposed to take place in a parking lot, I do believe. And uh, and then the next day, we will be moving onto our boat, which is currently on the hard, if you know what that means. It's basically up on a big platform sitting on a parking lot. And I'll be living there for a couple of Oh my gosh, Stu. Wow. <laughs> or until I get that boat in the water as soon as possible. <laughs> But the boats go, aren't allowed to go in the water until the governor says it's okay. Stu, can I ask a practicality question? What exactly are you going to do for, uh, how should I say, water closet, natural human body? <laughs> I've got it. We, got use it. A, we use a natural head, which is a composting toilet, so we don't even have to bother going off the boat. Or, nor are we, like most boats, have a, a place where they store it and then you have to pump it out. Uh, and then we have a shower. Uh, we've got a hot water tank. We have a refrigerator. Stu also is a big fan of the movie Waterworld, so he drinks his own piss. <laughs> love it, love oh, it. We should have recommended best that. Best movie ever. By composting, does that mean you'll be recycling the composting for fertilization and stuff like that? Or Yeah, well, uh, the first two times that happened, Ellen pretty much took care of that whole procedure. It was pretty bad, man. I mean, I didn't want to deal with that. But yeah. uh, 
the one is not so bad because you just go, you find a toilet and you pour it in. But the two is just, yeah, you don't want to deal with that. But it is compostable if you want to. But you don't want to put on vegetables. You know, you'd rather put on your, like, your flowers and things like that. Okay. All right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Jesse's ready to move on. He's like, okay, I'm done. So uh, talking about living under quarantine and in boats and locked away, um, Film Under Quarantine is our new virtual theater series for new reality. We're working with art house distributors to create a lineup of the latest documentary, international and independent films, each with a panel discussion or Q&A. Tickets for Film Under Quarantine are available on our website, filmsocietynwpa.org, and on our Facebook page. They're just 12 bucks per household. Uh, after you purchase your ticket, you've got 72 hours. That's three days to watch from the comfort of your home. And then on Wednesday evenings at 8 p.m., join us for a live virtual event to discuss the film via Zoom. You can find the links to join us on the sales page for each film. This is a great opportunity to support the Film Society and stay connected, our film community here in Erie. So hope you guys join us for those. This Wednesday, April 29th, we have The Whistlers, uh, which each of us will be watching as well as we are handling the panel discussion ourselves for the Whistlers. Um, in the Whistlers, not everything is as it seems for Christy, a police inspector from Bucharest who plays both sides of the law, embarking with the beautiful Gilda on a high-stakes heist. Both will have to navigate the twists and turns of corruption, treachery, and deception. A trip to the Canary Islands to learn a secret whistling language might just be what they need to pull it off. Um, so they build whistling this. language. I'm sorry. Yeah, they build this as a crime comedy, um, but really, it's like a it's like a international um, crime thriller. Uh, that really the comedy for me, I mean, as soon as they get into the whistling language, I just start <laughs> cracking up. <laughs> so I assume that's what they consider the comedy part. It's, it's really funny to see, um, you know, these are really, it's a serious plot and all of the actors are playing everything serious, but then they get into this whole whistling way of communication and it's just hilarious. So... Well, so anyways, that's I'm intrigued. Got. Yeah, I uh, I looked I looked it up because I was doing some art for it, and uh, all of the pictures. I think it must be of Gilda, yeah. beautiful Gilda. Gilda smokes in like every picture that I've seen. She's smoking. She's standing there with the cigarette, or it's and, like, and she's smoking. Yeah, and she's smoking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you don't see that as often in 2020. No, no. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's this week. affect her whistling. <laughs> I know. Is it this? Is it the that kind of helps with the whistling puckery? You're gonna find out. There's a whole methodology. Um, <laughs> all right. So looking ahead, <laughs> May 6th, we've got a documentary, uh, a really great documentary about gerrymandering or gerrymandering, which I learned is the correct pronunciation, called Slay the Dragon. And then May 13th, um, we've got Once We're Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band, which is a new documentary about the band, the band that Mike was just talking about in our last episode. Is it Once We're Brothers or Once We Were Brothers? <laughs> I'm not sure. Once We Were Brothers. 
It's okay, once we once. were brothers, yeah. Once we were brothers. Because right. last week when I introduced it, I called it We Were Brothers. So I got it wrong last week. Once we were brothers turn. is correct. And now it's your turn, John. Yeah. So as I said, jump on our Facebook page, our official website, Film Society NWPA.org for more information on these events. So some exciting news for filmmakers and artists, the Sundance Institute has stated that the pandemic has cast a bright light on the importance of art, and it has also laid bare the vulnerability of independent artists who are mostly freelance workers and often left out of the current support systems, despite their cultural and economic impact. So in response, the Sundance is launching a $1 million urgent fund to support immediate needs of artists in the community, as well as other filmmakers and organizations who are in need and that uh, share their focus on inclusive storytelling. They're actually partnering with a ton of other um, organizations for a relief program called Artist Relief. So you can find more information about that at sundance.org or at artistrelief.org. But that's great news that some filmmakers have a chance to get some of their funds back that they're missing out on. Yeah, that's good. So there was a recent article in IndieWire also about how the DGA, the Directors Guild of America, has uh, appointed Steven Sonnenberg to head the DGA committee on how to resume production safely after COVID has subsided. Uh, if anyone remembers, Sonnenberg directed Contagion, so that makes him the perfect person to be on this curve on this team uh, but it's not just going to be him on uh, the crew there I was read another article that talked about how uh, they're going to have heads from all unions talk about uh, what they deem important uh, to their departments and how they feel moving forward some of the things that people had been discussing already uh, included real-time testing uh, wide-scale prop disinfection uh, and being able to go home sick without having any backlash which everybody knows who works in the industry. Um, it's a reason why a lot of people do show up to work sick. And then the next thing you know, depending on the size of the crew, and this actually happens at any uh, office space, um, you know, people start getting sick and they just start passing it around. Um, it's really, I think, prevalent too at the universities. Um, so will also everyone return when they get back to the real world? Uh, will they have this heightened sense of cleanliness and the attention to cleanliness? And so, you know, I guess it will... Uh, perhaps, I don't know, could be a dividing line, you know, or a gray area, how people react to this. So I was curious, I don't know, Mike, you, uh, you work in this world too. And Jesse, um, what are your thoughts on this? Any, any major, or what if, what if all of a sudden say like the medic has to carry around a thermometer and he's checking everybody's temperature every hour? I mean, is that plausible? Is that feasible? I mean, you talk about a crew of 40 to hundred people working sometimes in a really small areas, um, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Or have you, have you even thought about it? I have. I've had to. Um, I, this could get real cynical really quickly. It, these are all conversations that merit and need to be happening and stuff like that. Um, having gone through this, not this, obviously not a pandemic where it's like different. My concern more than anything else is what happened in 2008 is going to sort of reciprocate itself again here in uh, 2020. Where you're going to have... A lot of um, networks uh, 
companies, uh, producers, if you will, recognize that the technology has made great leaps in advancement. And a lot of times when there's been these big watershed moments, what ends up happening is that, and this will be, I think that this is going to happen, is that you're going to have crew, like the number of people on set is going to get scaled back. And I like that. And I think that's the only way for a set to probably end up being a safe working environment. On the productions too, like if you're just in a studio system, like on a back lot or something, yeah, I mean, you only have so much space. So it might affect different productions differently, whether you're out on location somewhere versus, you know, on a lot. It'll be interesting. But it's necessary, totally necessary. Again, can't emphasize that enough. This is a conversation that has to happen. Okay, so Mike's pro-pandemic, got it. I think he's pro-solutions to the pandemic. Would that be more accurate? They will be discussed. I'm pro-patience. And, uh, and uh, I'm, I'm advocating patience. Uh, and because it's, I think we all know that sometimes on film sets, we're not always the most uh, <laughs> diplomatic <laughs> with our, uh, you know, with how we uh, use our words and everything like that. And it's just like, I think, you know, I think it's going to be a very interesting transitional time. And uh, one little bit of extra news coming out of New York State, long before the pandemic happened, they were negotiating their tax incentive, which we just found out what it was. The The downside was that they they lowered their rebate from 30% to 25%. Not, not a huge amount, um, but still could affect your budget. Uh, it is staying the same amount of $420 million, but the, uh, the big kick is for indie filmmakers who have projects with smaller budgets because they now have set a minimum spending requirement to qualify for the tax rebate. And it is $1 million if you are in New York City and $250,000 if you are outside of New York City. That's which, completely uh, reasonable. $250,000 in a filmmaking, that will go so fast. I think we all been there to prove that. Well, yeah, I think some people are looking at it that projects that have the smaller budgets, you know, they, they're they not getting any incentive. Yeah, you know, I think the, that's, the, the indie that's the short point. film that has a $100,000 budget. So hopefully Pennsylvania won't do that because that's not a great thing because, John, you took advantage of that on one of your first features and your budget was only under $20,000, was not it? Yeah, it was like 10 or 12. So this would, yeah, this, as, as so Jesse was alluding to, I think it hurts the, it hurts yeah. the small filmmakers. The way PA does it is kind of nice because you, it's just based on uh, a percentage of your budget. So no matter what your budget is, as long as you spend 60% of it within the state, you can qualify. Well, okay, yeah, I, I have some insight on that. Maybe yeah. they had too many lower ones going, trying to be applied, you know? The article that came out had said that uh, the, the program itself is meant to kind of give safety to union work. But then they went on to say that, you know, a ton of the work that goes on in the state is non-union or is smaller independent shoots. Do you, does your company uh, take advantage of that, Mike? The they don't they don't a lot of this has to do listen anytime that and it's really tough and apologies to albany and buffalo but whenever these things sort of happen it sort of all has to do with new york city and at the end of the day about 12 to 15 years ago it was really tried to take some measures of knocking down some of the independent uh filmmaking that was happening just out on the streets of new york 
and really tried to focus more on the bigger union shoots because it's not always convenient to have a, like a million shoots, particularly in a city of nine million people. Um, so it, there's it, it's a lot to, to Stu hit it on the head. They're trying to sort of decrease the incentive for smaller okay. shoots that happen in New York City. It's, the, the other thing too, though, they're getting these applications, and I've had this conversation with uh, Janice Collier, is that none of the applications are ever complete. And yeah, they sure. cannot process incomplete applications. And when you get piled up with a bunch of ones that, you know, financing falls through at the end or wasn't viable, you know, that's a, kind of a drag, I think, on the office that's processing the information because it's just tying them up. Well, you've got to follow the rules no matter who you are. But just for those uh, people who don't know who Janice Collier is, <laughs> she's at the Pennsylvania film office. We've stand to any of those. Last episode. Any of those indie filmmakers in New York that can't now take advantage of the tax credit, just come to Erie. We'll help you out. We'll get you on board with the PA film tax credit. And you can make your project here. You should touch base with Ghost in the Graveyard, Charlie Comparetto again, and see what he's up to. See how his film came out, because he's New York. He chose New York over Pennsylvania. It's really hard to do indie film in New York, unless like New York City and stuff like that. And again, all a lot of this, unfortunately, is you know it's the it's the elephant in the room. Whenever you see these state sort of wide things that happen in New York, it's it's always about the city at the end of the day. It's so much money. And so now um, we're moving into one, one film, film one series. series. Dun dun dun. Which Mike, you get to lead this off. I get to lead this off. Okay, uh, so the film this week was the uplifting family film, uh, Children of Men. Uh, Children of Men was a was written by, it's originally was a book uh, written by P.D. James, Phyllis Dorth James, uh, published in 1992. Uh, she's more, and there's some things that sort of jumped out at me. Uh, I haven't watched the film probably about eight years or something like that, and there's a few things that jumped out at me, and after doing a little bit of, a little bit of research, it was like, oh, that's that starts to make some sense. It uh, centers around the main character, uh, Theo, who is, uh, was a former political activist and he's drawn back into uh, the fray by his ex-wife, Julian, uh, when she has a uh, double secret probation mission for him of sorts. Um, and, that, and what is happening in the, in the plot of the story is that women uh, have stopped being able to give birth. And the film begins with the death of baby Diego, who is the world's youngest person at the age of 18. So it sort of gives you, it's a nice little setup and it sort of shows you everything, plays, puts all pieces in place very quickly. And uh, this film was uh, directed by uh, one of my favorites, Alfonso Cuaron. And uh, DP work has to be mentioned here by Emmanuel Lubeski. I think I said that correctly, um, who is sort of, he's kind of, he's kind of the guy, or at least has been the guy, I feel like, for like the last 20 years. And um, we're going to be studying him in film schools probably for decades to come, what he's done. Anyway, um, it's a, it's a tough film. It's a gritty film. And I think it's one of, from a uh, cinematography standpoint, it's one of the early ones that really start to do these single takes in a bunch of action type of thing and sort of had long takes. yeah long takes long takes yes uh it's it's an interesting one to go back to in lieu of everything that's happening now it's set in 2027 and i i think that there's a, there's a very interesting relationship with uh the characters and technology and where we are from uh environmental standpoint uh and uh it is it is a 
cynical movie. I mean, there is some silver lining in it, uh, and there is uh, very human aspects to it, uh, as there are with all of Curon's films, whether that be E2 Mama Tambien or Gravity and stuff like that. Uh, he loves to really put humanity up against the wall. Or Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Or Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. How could I possibly forget it? <laughs> Yes, uh, and uh, also Roma. Uh, so at this point, I open it to the panel. What did you guys think going back to this? What were thoughts, impressions, uh, revelations all these years? Like it, the film came out in 2006, so it's almost 14 almost years. Almost 15 years. Yeah, going back to it, I I don't think I really appreciated all, all the deep things that it had because I saw it just after high school. And I remember going to see it in the theater but the the cinematography, the plot, like everything, I was just eating it up really strong. Uh, yeah, I think it's a very deeply political film for sure. Um, one name that should be mentioned is author Naomi Klein, um, who Alfonso Cuaron's had some partnerships with her, making some shorts. Um, she did a book, her, the first book of hers that, that I read was called The Shock Doctrine, which I think is also very relevant today. I believe, I could be wrong, but I think that a lot of her writing influenced his worldview as well. Shock Doctrine is about um, how governments in, in times of disaster and crisis um, really change policy and squeeze those at the bottom even tighter. Uh, her new book is uh, The Burning Case for the Green New Deal, which uh, of course is very relevant as, as well. I just found the film to be, especially in this time, um, you know, Mike, for you to pick it, of a health crisis. I think Children of Men shows, you know, they had one health crisis in that world uh, and everything kind of starts to show its cracks and crumbles and you kind of get the worst of society. I thought your timing in choosing it uh, today was very interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's one of my favorite films. I mean, I love The Three Amigos, um, Inaratu, Cuaron, Del Toro. I love everything that they make. And this film for me, is, it's a perfect masterpiece. Um, inside and out and I think it, it's so political and it says so much about society and government and um that's and fantastic humanity. it and holds humanity. up and humanity and it holds up when yeah. I was watching it I thought that it's so the action is is so constant it's like frantic and terrifying and then it's sad I mean the moments that aren't aren't frantically terrifying are sad there, there's nothing else and as you're as you're watching them go on this journey, it reminds me of a video game. I'm not even a, even a huge gamer, but I feel like it is a video game. You have a very very specific objective, and you're encountering you're in a, a universe with lots of destruction all around you that you have to understand and navigate you have to negotiate you have to i mean it just it's so encapsulated it felt like this is a mission to go on getting this woman to her boat and i don't know i don't know if there's any more of a point to what i'm saying but it seems like a very encapsulated experience and so because you have people in cages that are screaming and 
people being gunned down in front of you and in the background, it just felt like you're in a, like an immersive video game that you could be part of it. I think that's a commentary on, you know, we're one level removed of the facade of our safety net, <laughs> like <laughs> government programs and stuff like that. Um, oh, yeah. And Children of Men is, yeah, another one of those. We're a little more lawless. There's something that jumped out at me since Erica mentioned uh, the video game aspect of it uh, that was weird. And then when I was doing a little bit of research, started to make sense. Um, and I started off by mentioning P.D. James. This story has a lot of detective elements to it. And P.D. James is actually known. She only wrote three books outside of the series, but she wrote a uh, detective series, a very famous detective series of like 15 books with her main character named Adam Danglish, uh, which was her character. And there's a lot of like sort of almost noir aspects to it. If you've read any uh, uh, Dashiell Hammett and uh, Raymond Chandler and, uh, and she's sort of, she's taking that archetype of Theo and, you know, throwing him. And he, he this is a character that feels like he's a Sam Spade or could have been like in another life or in another plot could have been like a Sam Spade or something like that, or a Phil or a Philip Marlowe. And it's a, it's, it's interesting because it's like her roots this time around, just because over the time I've done a bunch of reading, the roots of that really sort of came, jumped out at me. And it's like, Oh my gosh, this is like a detective story. And then sure enough, as I was researching it, it started to connect why that felt that way. Well, even right from the opening scene, uh, you know, he's beat down, he's drinking and then bam, you know, it's like it throws you right into this world of a, a very plausible, very, you know, uh, true future world. You know, it could actually happen. I mean, it's like we're, you know, living it right now. But um, Clive Owens, I think it was one of his first movies where he did a lead. I thought he did a great job on that. First, first American movie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Was right. it American? Uh, That's a good point, actually. I feel like I don't know. most yeah. of the characters are, are European. Yeah, well, Michael Caine, he was great, too, you know? Oh, uh, Jasper, yes. Excuse me. And, uh, and, of course, the cinematography. Of course, you know, we always love to talk about that. There's even that one shot, uh, you know, a little blood splatter right on the lens. And then through the magic of post-production, they morph, like, two shots together and erase the blood. And, yeah, it worked out great. Because anybody else would have been like, stop, you know, we got smuck on the lens. We got to reshoot that. Nah, it worked. It added to the effects. And just the fact, too, that whole point of view and the crawling along and it's dirty and it's overcast and just looks like a miserable London day. Yeah, it just it brought the whole movie to life. It's become very in vogue to have the long take and yes. uh, even have films like that. And I think what gets lost sometimes is framing. And uh, if, you're, if you want, if like somebody is really interested in that sort of throwing it up on a gimbal or a steady cam and stuff like that and rolling, 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 I would recommend, you know, go and watch all of Lubezki's, like watch all of his films. Because at the end of the day, he might do this, but he is very intentional and very deliberate about where he is framing it up and what he is putting in the, uh, what he is putting, you know, within the gate, like in the gate. Stuff, well, he's good because he allows the actors to walk into frame instead of moving the camera to like zip over to here or zip over to there, which is total abusive. The the, the you know the style it gets abused a lot. Yeah. 
right now. I was taking one other pairing to this, and I only know this because my wife was just finishing watching it up, and I still have to watch it. But uh, Handmaid's Tale, someone mm-hmm. had suggested that that might be a nice little uh, a pairing. Yeah, it's a glass of wine, little children of men. <laughs> so, so everybody thinks it holds up. Recommended. Yeah. If people really haven't does. watched it, you gotta watch it. Yeah, yep. definitely. Yep, must watch. So I chose um, probably the perfect antidote to watching Children of Men over the past week is the IT Crowd, which is a British comedy. It's the you know short half hour, twenty five minute comedy. Um, each episode pretty much stands on its own. You know, there's not really an ongoing story. Um, even if there are little threads, you can, you don't have to follow them in order to really enjoy watching the show. I'm reminded that there's actually five seasons instead of, um, four, like I said last week, but I think there's only like six episodes a season, maybe 10, something like that. The last season's like one episode, right? That's right. Yeah. So they, yes, you're absolutely right, Mike. They did like one episode. Um, came out in 2006. So, you know, that's almost 15 years old as well. I absolutely love it because it's totally rewatchable. It never, I mean, I always laugh when I watch it. It's always funny, even though I've seen it, I know the jokes. I don't know if slapstick is the word I would use. It's not really slapstick comedy. It's, but it's also not too, um, uh, British cerebral. It's not too, what did you say? It's British comedy. It's British comedy. It's like Blackadder. It's like, it's got a great, it's got a great vibe. It doesn't take itself too seriously. Um, You don't have to be like super intellectually honed in on it, but it also doesn't treat you like an idiot. The characters are very, very well drawn. Um, Jen Barber is the head of this department. She doesn't know much about technology, but she's figured out that she is the one who can relate to other people, whereas her two colleagues that she manages are two very socially awkward men that should not be interacting with anyone. (laughs) Um, So she finds her place, but I love it. Um, The first three episodes of season one are all solid episodes. Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts, guys. Well, the feelings I felt during Children of Men were 100% the opposite of the feelings I felt <laughs> when I watched the IT crowd. Yes. It yes. was very funny. I found it very enjoyable. It well, both nice, of them. It was nice to watch something that was short. 20 yes. minutes. It was. it was funny. Chris Dowd. Yeah. Chris O'Dowd. Yeah, I like him. He's yeah. a funny guy. Yep. It was good stuff. But it's, yeah, it's that, it's like the straight face, you got the straight person, and then the, you know, comic relief. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of the humor in, like, uh, How I Met Your Mother, just a British version of that. Uh Maybe a little bit of the Big Bang Theory with the the nerdy tech stuff. Mm -hmm. Definitely. um, Just good fun. Yeah. Good fun. Easy fun. Easy Easy fun. fun. Which they don't make, do they even make shows like this anymore? I guess they kind of do. I'm sure uh, they do. I just don't watch them. But Modern Family, that's, that's an hour, isn't it? Yeah. No. It no, no, no. Those are 30. Is, is that a half-hour yeah. sitcom still? Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know if they're making – so this is like uh, – what, the, what's the term for it? It's uh, the three-camera comedy sitcom and stuff sitcom. like that. And uh, I don't know if they're making the three-camera sitcom with this degree of humor 
And there's, there is like an intelligence to the humor. It's like, it's, it's doing that amazing sort of dance, that double dutch of like, yes, the jokes are down here, but like there's some of the, some of it's hitting on a higher level. Uh, of sophistication. There, there was canned laughter, though, and applause. So. Yes. That, I, that was the toughest thing for me. Uh, I haven't watched a show for a while that has, like, a studio audience or a laugh track. Um, so I have to admit, when I first started watching it, I was like, Because it, like, really... I, I really don't need that manipulation to know when to laugh. Uh, I know it's no fall of the show. That's how it is. But um, it really reminded me of like, you know, with with the audience, even the sound in the studio, it reminded me so much of, um, oh, even with the end credits going by so fast, like Monty Python, the Flying Circus, like it seemed like it was really giving an homage to um, that show for sure. It well, even had silly, a silly walk in episode two. Um, when she's oh, wearing yeah. the shoes and her shoes <laughs> yeah um yeah i mean i it keeps pulling me back in like like i'm kind of fighting against the show because um <laughs> it's very familiar to me so i get a lot of the humor but then i feel like a lot of the acting is like very theatrical like jen this, the character of jen especially i felt like she was really like doing like the 110% level acting. Um, but it seems like she's coming down a little bit in, in episode three. So um, I feel like for me, once I finish Ships Creek, which is kind of like my palate cleanser show um, that I go to in yes. just like three or four episode doses when I need to, I feel like mm -hmm. this is probably going to be my new comedy palate cleanser so it is a good palate You're, that's a great way to describe it john it's a it's an amazing palate cleanser it will remove your bad mood for sure absolutely oh. and and i will give a i will give a, a boost to the remaining seasons i mean it's all hilarious probably one of the funniest episodes of any show that i have ever seen is i think it's the first episode of season two i'm going to confirm that when they the, go to the theater? The workouting. The workouting when they oh, go to the, the workouting. theater. Oh, the workouting. That's funny. Yes. It is. It has a 9.5 rating on IMDb <laughs> wow. because it is that. It is so ridiculous, but it's also not. It, it's just, it's perfect. It's perfect, guys. Go, yeah, go I, watch the workouting. I appreciate that. Yeah, I appreciate the suggestion because I, I think I maybe even watched one episode like, so many years ago and I just never came back to it. So I appreciate it. I love British humor. I love the dryness of it. I love just like in uh, Ricky Gervais, The Office, like the office parties and that whole culture of like getting together yeah. and drinking at work in the office. It's, yeah. it's like so foreign, foreign to yeah, me. Yeah, bring that back. <laughs> John, so funny that you bring that up because it reminds me of, again, since, since we're going back you know, we're going back 15 years. Ricky Gervais had a radio show and you were like, you need to listen to Ricky Gervais's radio show. And I remember listening to it and thinking this guy's insane. Like Ricky Gervais, you know, cause it was before I even like watched the office ever. I mean, this was like the early 2000s, but I remember listening to his radio show on your recommendation. Yeah, that was one of the early podcasts. He had like the number one podcast for yeah. a long time. 
And here yeah, we are podcasting. That's yeah, good, good British humor. Yeah. All right. ter- terrible lighting, awful <laughs> studio sound. It's or like watching BBC One back in British. the 70s. Again. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, you want a studio? Sure, we got one for you. <laughs> in the basement. Balls, right. Yeah, it's in a closet, like literally. <laughs> oh, the young one. Remember the young ones? Comedy. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Stu. Remember the young ones? No. Oh, dude, that one was hysterical, too. You got to look at that one someday. Is that on Eagle? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No. There's anyway, something to comedy. It's, when it's done, it, there's a dirt and down and dirty element to comedy when it's like done that way that just like you're on for the ride. It's almost sometimes better if the production value isn't always Tropic Thunder. Thunder is one of my favorite comedy. Tom Cruise was awesome in that. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, so, all right. IT crowd gets thumbs up from everybody. Good. We're going we're gonna to report back. So the other thing we love to do is hear from you guys. And uh, on Facebook, everyone's talking about what they're watching. Um, a couple of people are saying they're watching little fires everywhere. Is anyone mm-hmm. else watching this? Elena, and, Elena, Elena and Kayla Gallagher. are both watching it. Yeah. J.J. Hodges is watching Code 8 on Netflix. Yeah, I have never heard of Code 8 before. Here's one that I should probably start watching. The Walking Dead. Chris Drexel says he's never watched an episode before quarantine. Now he's halfway through season five. I have never watched a single episode. Me neither, mm-hmm. Stu. He's going not, hard. Not, yeah, not, not interested. I know. I just don't care it's about zombies. zombies. Just keep coming. <laughs> it's stop. just zombies. I don't, right. yeah. It's not really my thing. So wait, Hunters, the, the Al Pacino show. Is yeah, anybody watching not, that? Uh, uh, looks like Morgan Getty is. Yeah, so. I don't know Morgan, but. I, I watched it. I must it's, have uh, been asleep. Uh, well, I watched it when it came out originally. Uh, it's very, uh, it's fun. If you like those ex, uh, exploitation films and stuff like that, it has it's very much an homage to that. Nick is it a movie or a series? It's a series. It's a 10 episode series so far. Oh, okay. Yeah. One more here. Uh, Stu Nash is watching Tiger King. Don't <laughs> believe the hype. <laughs> uh, but no, here's Nick Ozorak, uh, who's a recent new member to the Film Society. He's watching McMillions and Goodfellows. Goodfellows is a total classic. Again, mandatory viewing by all. And I just recently watched McMillions. Has anyone else watched that? I and have. I, I thought it was pretty good. I, of course, uh, you know, it is all about the Monopoly game uh, scandal that was going on uh, whenever uh, McDonald's was running their Monopoly, Monopoly game. Uh, there were no true winners. The whole thing was completely rigged by one yeah. person. And he was like the security guard or something. Yeah, he was the security <laughs> guard for the uh, marketing firm. For the marketing was, firm. Yeah. Yeah. How about that? And he did it for like 25 years or something like that. It was, know, only, right? it was only until the second time around that they brought the uh, Monopoly game back uh, that the FBI started a sting operation to get him. But yeah, I highly, I, I mean, I highly recommend watching that one. It's a little slow. The characters are there, but it's just interesting to see it happen. And it was McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and they do the Monopoly game still at uh, Tops. Okay. So you can still play Monopoly. I thought that that was just like, eh, we're done with Monopoly with the public for good now. <clears throat> I thought that brand was kind of tainted. 
Um, <laughs> they did talk about that, and they said, you know, it didn't matter because people just love that Monopoly game, and they say their their sales go through the roof whenever they bring that thing up. <laughs> so I guess right. it goes to show people like Monopoly. Mm-hmm. But anyways. Well, anyway, we love it when people tell us what they're watching because, honestly, it gives me ideas when I see what people are watching. But uh, I'm going to have to try Little Fires Everywhere because I've heard from enough people that it's good. I do like Reese Witherspoon. I'm going to give it a shot. All right. So um, next week, we've got a film and a series. Um, I've got the film this week. It is called A Ghost Story. It's directed by David Lowry. Um, I love his work very much. We showed his film, Ain't Them Bodies Saints, um, at Film at the Erie Art Museum, and it stars the same cast, which is Casey Affleck and Rooney Mara. Um, This is a story about loss and grieving and hope. It has fantastic music, and um, it's such a basic, basic story. It is a ghost story, but um, it really moved me a lot emotionally, and I hope it moves you as well. It all takes place in a house, the importance of house, um, your home, your abide, where you spend your life and love and so much time um, with someone that you love. And when you experience loss in that house, and deal with it on a timeline to eternity. Wow, That's my sounds pitch. good. A ghost story. It's, so heavy. it's on it's on Netflix. Cool. Can't wait. And I'm gonna recommend What We Do in the Shadows, which is a TV show on Hulu. It's based on the film What We Do in the Shadows, uh, that came out in 2014 with Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords and Taika Watiti. It's a show about vampires living in London and all of their crazy antics, but it is 100% comedy. There's even in this, in this show traditional vampires. They can turn into bats. They can turn into fog. They sleep in coffins. They're very Nosferatu-like. There's, there's like a normal human energy vampire living with them who has to splint right with them. So they make very light of all of their... Uh, supernatural aspects so give it a watch it's it's more easy humor love the film can't wait all right well that's been our episode you can purchase your virtual ticket for the whistlers through our website and through the facebook page and join us this wednesday night at 8 p.m for a panel discussion on the film and check out a ghost story on netflix and what we do in the shadows on hulu and let us know what you think in the comment section on facebook make sure you follow us on social media you'll find all the tags and links in the show notes for this episode until next time this was film grain